Um, so I've talked a lot lately um, over the past month or two about the original small group um, that uh, I first kind of started dating my wife in. Um, and honestly, courting Esther in that environment um, was kind of cheating, really. Um, God was doing so much in our lives and, and, uh, and moving so much during that season that was kind of truly miraculous, um, the things that were taking place around us. So sometimes I think maybe I kind of landed my wife on a technicality, like um, she got so caught up in everything God was doing that it made me seem like maybe I was a, a better catch than I really was. Um, but as I was looking for an opening story uh, for this series about God's kingdom, um, I think maybe I have unlocked the mystery of, uh, of how I managed to win the heart of my beloved wife uh, 30 years ago. Um, three men approached the, the gates of God's kingdom where they were immediately greeted by Peter. Um, and he said, hello, sirs, and welcome to the kingdom of God. Uh, in heaven, there is only one rule. Do not step on a duck. Uh, I'm sorry, can you repeat that, they questioned. Um, he said, over the years, many misconceptions about heaven have arisen. Yes, it's a pretty nice place. No, it's not perfect, but it's close. You see, the only problem is the ducks. Uh, if you step on a duck, it will begin to quack, um, and then all the other ducks will quack, and and uh, and it just the whole place is nothing but quacking for a while, which is a nuisance for all of us. So if you step on a duck, there will be consequences, St. Peter uh, replied. The three men looked at each other and mostly just excited to have gotten into heaven. They laughed it off uh, and continued into the kingdom of God. As far as the eye could see, there were nothing but ducks. Uh, almost immediately, one of the men accidentally stepped on a duck. Uh, and just as Peter said, the duck began to quack, and then all the ducks around him began to quack, and soon there was a tidal wave of audible quacking. And after the quacking had passed, two angels approached the man who had broken the only rule. They had with them a hag of a woman, truly awful woman. And without a word, they shackled the hag to the man who had stepped on the duck, and they vanished. The other two men were suddenly very careful after, uh, after this, not wanting to step on a duck. And although they tried their best, one of them eventually did step on another duck. The same phenomenon as before. The angels showed up, only this time carrying a huge Amazonian woman with a humpback and warts all over her face. They shackled the woman to the man and left. The final man began to tread very carefully. And he spent many, many days and nights successfully stepping around the ducks. He knew he was being shallow, but eternity weighed very heavy on his mind. After a while, with no prompting, the angels showed up again uh, to the man, only this time bringing a beautiful woman, a truly beautiful woman. They shackled the, the, the man to the woman and left without a word. The man was so delighted and excited, he audibly said to himself through a huge grin, Wow, what did I do to deserve this? And the woman said, I don't know what you did, but I stepped on a duck. <laughs> uh, I've got to be honest, talking about our original small group um, has been a little difficult for me because it's a huge season of our life that ended in a tragic car wreck. Um, and so going back, there's been a little bit painful, but it's also been kind of weirdly healthy and inspiring for me. There's been so much time over Lent um, in my memories of those old days. And, uh, and, um, and how I fell so deeply in love in that season 
with Jesus and with the Bible and church and kind of the whole Christian lifestyle thing. And my wife, I, I fell in love with my wife too during that time. I have to remember that or I get in trouble. Um, well, as I began to feel this next series kind of taking shape in my heart, um, and I started to feel like God was kind of speaking to me what we needed to do next um, as a church. That old small group and the way we did life together and the way that it completely changed my world um, felt to me like the perfect metaphor um, for, uh, for where God was leading us. Um, something like about that group, something about that time um, was what God wanted me to try and articulate. And I need to unpack that just, just a bit um, because it's not the group itself. Um, that I'm after, uh, and I'm not in any way saying that group is perfect or that we need to replicate that group. That's not it at all. Um, but the one thing that that was perfect for me um, at that stage of life was how absolutely new and alien that group was. Um, and here's what I mean by that. Last week we celebrated Easter. We celebrated the empty tomb. Um, we celebrated the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of our souls, not only offered Himself to us as a sacrifice for sin on our behalf, but literally conquered death. And in so doing, uh, made a way for all of the most beautiful promises of Scripture to to be true. And one week ago, we celebrated the single day in history that changes literally everything forever. We talked about how much that moment alters reality. Our sin Hashtag canceled. Our debt, hashtag canceled. Our shame, the veil of separation between us and God, our fear and anxiety and depression, cancer, all hashtag canceled. And if I aren't careful, I'll get too worked up. And it's way too early in the sermon for that. We'll never get out of here. But we talked about how this moment was so huge that people who had every reason to expect this moment to happen... Because Jesus had told them it was going to happen. They had the evidence right in front of them that it had happened. And they still struggle with the reality of how monumental this moment is. That somebody was raised from the dead. There's simply no way to overstate how big of a deal this was. Absolutely impossible to make too big of a deal out of Easter. But this raises issues. For many of us, Easter has just become another holiday. It's akin to the 4th of July or Thanksgiving. We look at Easter as this day that, that we set aside to recognize something that happened historically. And yeah, it's a good day. It's worthy of attention and a fancy lunch and, and having your family close and pastel colors and whatever else. But game changing? Not usually. It's just become another day. In fact, for many of us who grew up in church or a mostly Christian culture, the reality of the resurrection is just a normal thing that happened. Like learning about gravity. It's cool to know why apples fall to the ground, but really doesn't change the fact that apples have just always fallen to the ground. And we treat Easter like that sometimes. But this small group that I went to, And the time of my life when I went there, it was like visiting another country. It was like something entirely new and brand new. Everything was new. Everything. The way people treated each other, the way we passed the time, the things that were okay to say and the things that were not okay to say, the things we looked forward to and the way we moved toward those goals. And maybe the weirdest thing at all was the stuff that stopped mattering. That we almost forgot existed. 
The things that once loomed so huge in our minds and consumed so much of our time and energy suddenly felt utterly foreign and inconsequential. Like I remember a friend in that season, one of my like friends from my old life, called me up and wanted to talk about some juicy gossip about a couple mutual friends. In confession, I love gossip. I'm like a huge drama queen. I love talking about other people. Uh, love gossip. And in the, the light of what God was doing in our life at that time, there was truly epic battles going on and the way we were praying for people and fighting for people's souls and seeing people get healed and seeing people be victorious over sin and death. And it was like, I not only wasn't tempted by this gossip, but it was, the very idea was appalling. I was like almost embarrassed that I used to love having those conversations. It's hard to articulate that feeling that sense of utter uh, foreignness. And that's what we're after in this series. Because the reality is Easter changed everything. I mean, it changed everything. One of the best pieces for the, re- for the, for the, the veracity of the, of the resurrection is how much it changed the people who experienced it. These, these, these followers of Jesus... Um, these 12 kind of ragamuffin friends of Jesus um, who were totally terrified when Jesus got arrested to the point that they scattered and hid while Jesus was being tried, literally denying they even knew him, had something so dramatic happened that they not only spent their lives testifying about it, but they literally went to their awful deaths, their torturous deaths still declaring it. I read a quote from Chuck Colson this week about how Watergate is what convinced him that the resurrection was real. He said these, these 12 men told the same story for 40 years while being beaten and tortured and stoned and imprisoned and eventually killed. Never once changing their stories. He said in Watergate, 12 of the most powerful people in the world, trained in political intrigue, conspired together to tell a lie and couldn't hold it up for three weeks. So to put it bluntly, we simply cannot, should not, be able to contemplate the empty tomb, the resurrection, the sacrificial death and victorious life of Jesus without it changing everything. The Bible authors use the phrase born again and new creation to try and capture this idea, but it seems like we've mostly made those kind of theological debate points rather than true realities in our life. So what I'm hoping to do in the next seven weeks is to look at what it means to live in the kingdom of God. What is supposed to change? What's supposed to be different about this reality? Because that's what I felt when I started walking with God 30 years ago. We were in that small group. I felt like I was in a foreign land, like everything was new. Different rules, different citizens, different economy, different rights and privileges, different enemies, and praise God, a different king. I think this is what it's supposed to feel like. I don't think we should be able to just smoothly acclimate to the kingdom of God with no culture shock. So what I want to do from now up to Pentecost is, is look for some kingdom culture shock. But a couple caveats. First, this is going to be a little uncomfortable. If I don't make you uncomfortable in this series, then I'm probably not digging deep enough. Because like I said, Easter is supposed to change the very nature of things. 
and the impact that Jesus had on his earliest followers, the kingdom should do that to us. It should stretch us. It should change us. Second, I'm going to keep the nerd work to a minimum for this series. Uh, last year, coming out of Easter, I wanted to lean into the impact that that Easter was supposed to have on our lives. And so I preached a series called The Game of Life and what it meant to truly have life. And I kind of got bogged down in the academics of it, the things that the Bible, how it defines life. And, and uh, it didn't quite hit what I was after. So this year, from now to Pentecost, I hope to experience the kingdom more than study it. That makes sense, I think. So, um, one of the things that I love about talking about the kingdom in this vein is is the way that Jesus talked about it. And that kind of hits on what we want to do a little bit. People would come asking blunt and black and white questions about the kingdom. What is the kingdom of heaven? They would ask him questions. And he never said, the kingdom of heaven is this. He would say, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's kind of like this. It's also a little bit like that. He's like, it's kind of like a farmer. It's also kind of like a fisherman. It's also kind of like a woman baking bread. He would say, it's, it's a little bit like this, a little bit like that. And he never really nailed down and got academic about it. Which brings me to my final caveat. We're going to be all over the place in this series. As I began to kind of dig into this concept a little, um, I realized that we could spend an entire year on this topic, maybe the rest of our lives, on what it means to live in the kingdom of God. Um, so we're, we're going we're gonna to have to bounce around a bit. We're going to spend some time with some of Jesus' stories and metaphors, what we call parables, where he talks about the kingdom. We're going to spend some time talking about the Old Testament and, and what they can teach us about living in the kingdom of God. And, and we're also going to look at the lives of some of Jesus' earliest followers and, and how they lived out uh, this new reality called the kingdom. Um, so even though normally I like to kind of park in a text... Um, and not bounce around a ton because I feel like sometimes we do that to to manipulate the ideas we really want to push. We grab a verse here and a verse there. So I try not to cherry pick. I try to just park in a text and talk about that text. Um, this topic is so big that we're going to have to bounce around a bit uh, because the the idea of the kingdom of God is absolutely ginormous. ginormous. But the way we're going to hold this together um, uh, it, this series is is uh, by looking at seven elements of every kingdom. Um, this is nothing profound or miraculous. I simply looked up, like, what is a kingdom in, like, Britannica.com or Encyclopedia.com or something. And, uh, and it was like, there's seven elements of a kingdom. And I was like, I want to do this for seven weeks. This is, like, perfect. So, um, so this isn't, like, some brilliant thing I came up with. This is, like, literally the, the simplest Google search I could do. Um, but the fact that they gave me, like, seven things that are kind of uh, elements that every kingdom has... It fits, so we're going to use it. So that's, that's the outline we're going to follow. We're going to talk about kind of seven things that are essential to every kingdom and how that can, uh, uh, how that can affect us as we try to live forward in the kingdom of God. So the first thing that every kingdom um, has almost goes without saying. Every kingdom has a king. Yeah, uh, and, uh, and this turns out to be one of the kind of primary threads through the entire biblical narrative. Um, is the idea of the king. We could actually track this all the way back to the Garden of Eden if we want it and take it all the way up to the final book, final chapter in the book of Revelation, um, but I don't want to bog us down. So we're going to grab a single moment in the history of God's kingdom 
that I think really highlights what we're trying to get at um, and the complexity of this reality for most of us. Uh, so I'm going to be reading in 1 Samuel 8 if you want to follow along in your Bible or app. Um, the words will also be on the screen. Oh, fam, if you want to hit the link in the bulletin, um, the slides will be there. Or you can just uh, uh, sit and listen, whichever one's best for you. Um, as Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel, Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons. They held court in Beersheba, but they were not like their father. For they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah and discussed the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are now old and your sons are uh, not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they're going, uh, giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them the way a king will reign over them. This is the word of the Lord. So Samuel is the final judge uh, in, in Israel. Uh, and whoever wrote the actual book of Judges, I think had this exact moment in mind when they wrote and co- or compiled or however that works, that book. Uh, because there's a theme that happens over and over and over again in the book of Judges with this repeated phrase that says, in those days there was no king in Israel. It's like they, they're trying to, because they just keep telling these stories about judges that start pretty good with Joshua. Joshua does pretty amazing things. And the judges just get worse and worse. Like by the end where it's Samson and you're like, I don't even know if this guy is a good guy. Like um, he just does awful things. And, and the nation just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And, uh, and whoever's writing it or compiling it keeps giving these hints. These were the days when there was no king in Israel. These are the days. Remember, these are the days when there was no king in Israel. Like they're trying to say. This is the day before there was somebody to set everything right. But as Samuel, the last judge, gets old, the nation decides to change things. And it's really hard to overplay how monumental this moment is in a nation. Because they've had one form of government for 500 years. That's like considerably longer than America's been here. They've they've been, uh, since Moses, 500 years earlier, they've had one kind of government. And now they're just switching governments. They're moving from a constitutional theocracy to a monarchy. Um, and that's big for a country to like change governmental structures is huge. But the bigger thing is the fact that they went from a, a, a kingdom that was founded by God when he freed them from Egyptian slavery um, and uh, to, to someone other than God being on the throne. And God says that they don't want me to be their king any longer. And so they're changing um, something huge. And the weight of this moment shows up with this chilling line, um, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. And wow, does that reveal the first and probably biggest gap in our thinking when it comes to grasping that every kingdom needs a king. Give us a king to judge over us. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Israel is saying, give us a king. And God is saying, you already have one. And, that, and that's the problem. It's not that they don't have a king. It's that they don't recognize their king. Can you see how huge that nuance is? The Israelites are acting as if they don't have a king. And the only reason they ask for a king is because they don't realize they've always had one. And that's huge. 
And there's this trend in kind of our highly um, polarized, divisive American politics where when your candidate loses, you get a T-shirt or a bumper sticker or something that says, not my president. Have you, have you seen this reality? Everybody's like, it's not my president. But you know what happens when, when the not your president does things to completely raise inflation? You pay more for everything because whether he's not your president or not, he's your president. And it affects you. And that's what's happening here. Everybody shows up to Samuel wearing Not My King t-shirts. And Samuel's like, well, that's great, except he is your king. God's response is, I've always been your king. And whenever we read this passage, we have this tendency to stand with Samuel, right? We totally judge Israel like, man, those guys, they blew it. Just assuming we'd be on Samuel's side, offended that they don't want God as their king. We'd make the right call. But I think we actually still do this all the time. In fact, I think we do it with pastors. We tend to assume the pastor is the one in charge of the church, the CEO, the the head, right? For the majority of my adult life, I've argued that there's nothing in the New Testament that supports this, this model. There's nothing that supports the one man of God model in the New Testament. Everything in the, in the New Testament is, is ministry teams. Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, Paul and Timothy, you know, Peter and John, like we see these ministry teams or, or groups of elders or councils. The first time they have a major issue, they gather everybody and they have a council to talk about it. Even the Apostle Paul in all of his letters where it feels like he's the boss always references his ministry team that's working with him and, and helping him with this letter. I'm here with such and such and such and such, such and such who actually wrote this while I dictated it. And every time I bring this up and every time we argue about it, people are like, yeah, but they, they hit me with that pragmatic line. Yeah, but somebody has to be in charge. I mean, somebody has to make the calls, right? I'm like, yeah, exactly. Jesus. That's who's in charge. That's, that's who makes the calls. And they're like, ah, but I mean, there's got to be somebody on earth who's in charge. I'm like, yeah, Jesus. That was why the Holy Spirit came. So that Jesus could be on earth making the calls. That's exactly, it's like everybody's like, but, but we have to have a king like everybody else. I'm like, no, we have a king. You can hear those old echoes still showing up. So here's what I really want to get from 1 Samuel. If you want to live in a kingdom, you have to have a king. If you want to live in, in, in the kingdom of God, what Paul calls inheriting the kingdom, he calls it that several times. If, if you want all the rights and privileges that come with living in the kingdom of God, because spoiler alert, one of the elements that every kingdom has is, is rights and privileges for its citizens. And further, spoiler alert, in the kingdom of God, those are pretty awesome. But if you want the rights and privileges that come with, with living in God's kingdom, you can't ignore the king. If you live like there's no king, there's a cost to that decision. And this morning's passage bears that out. It ends with, do as they say, but solemnly warn them. The way a king will reign over them. Tell them what they're picking. And Samuel goes on to lay out this kind of horrible scenario. Here's what a king's going to do. He's going to conscript all your men into the army. He's going to tax you. He's going to take your daughters for his harem. I mean, they, and Samuel makes it sound pretty awful. And the people are like, yeah, let's do that. It's crazy. If people insist on living as though they don't already have a king. And we face that same decision. We cry out for a king. I want someone to tell me how to live. 
so that I can be like everyone else. For some of us, it's the pastor. Whatever the pastor says, that's what I have to do, right? I have to obey, which is why we church shop, because if, if, we're gonna, if we've got a conviction we have to obey the pastor, we want to make sure we pick somebody we like obeying, right? For some of us, it's an ideology or a denomination or a theologian. Whatever they say is what I have to believe. For others, it's a politician or a party. I need my team to tell me what's important and what I need to value, what I need to take seriously. For others, it's social pressure, anything to not be different. I just want to fit in. And that might mean fitting in at work. It might mean being like all the other parents. It might mean putting your kids in 10 million things because that's what every other parent does and you're afraid you're going to put your kid behind and so you have to, you have to do what everybody else does. And some of us, it means fitting in at church. We don't want to actually seek God and petition the king about how he lives, so we just look at what everybody else does. We just don't want to be different. Just give us a king so we, we don't have to be different than everybody else. So we don't have to be set apart or holy. That's what that word holy means, set apart and different. And Israel's like, we don't want to be different anymore. We want to be just like everybody else. And I can hear God whispering, but you already have a king. And like ancient Israel, we so often ignore the reality that we have a king. We reject God as our king. And what we wind up with is Saul. That's who Israel got. And it was awful. And it's awful for us when we do that. But God is faithful. And I love what he does um, when the Israelites decide that they want a, a human king instead of God. First, he gives them what they want. He gives them a human king. And then he, then he calls this shepherd boy named David. And, and once he, God, accomplishes getting David on the throne, he tells David, the second human king of Israel, that he's going to give him a son who will sit on the throne forever. He promises that to David. We call it the Davidic covenant. I'm going to give you an heir and your heir will rule forever. Then God sends his own son in the line of David. So that, uh, and then, and then when his son shows up, he declares over and over again that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This, this kingdom is finally here. And people call him son of David and king of the Jews. And Jesus constantly spoke of the kingdom as though he had an intimate understanding of how it works and functions. So basically what God does, and this is the super cool part, is way back in 1 Samuel 8 when they say they want their own human king, he not only gives them their human king, but also through Jesus, gets to continue to rule over them. He gives them both. In Jesus, God got to rule over his people personally, but also got to give them what they asked for, which is a human king. And when we look at this whole story, it seems like maybe this was the way it was supposed to be all along. Way back before Israel ever asked for or even thought about a king, Moses had a feeling they would eventually go this route. So in Deuteronomy, Moses actually gives the people some advice concerning a king. This is Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 14. You can hit the link, O fam, if you want to follow in the bulletin. You're about to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. When you take it over and settle there, you may think you should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. I mean, Moses nailed it. If this happens, be sure to select as a king the man the Lord your God chooses. You must appoint a fellow Israelite. You may not be a foreigner. The king must not build up stables for horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. The king 
must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And he must not uh, accumulate large amounts of wealth or silver or gold for himself. When he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instructions on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. He must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way he will learn to fear the Lord, his God, by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he is above his fellow citizens. It will also prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way. And it will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. In Israel, in Moses' day, horses were only used for military uh, activities. So you use donkeys and things in farming, horses and, and riding horses because they were wild. They weren't that great at breaking. They only used, for, this is warfare, this is military stuff. So basically Moses says the king of the Jews should not amass an army. He shouldn't have a harem. He shouldn't store up wealth and he needs to be a Bible guy. That's not like anybody we've ever heard of before. So Jesus shows up looking like Moses' king. And this is where the Bible starts to come together into this kind of beautiful, rich, long story from, from beginning to end through the whole 1,500 years it was being written. Because on first read in Deuteronomy 17, when Moses talks about this, we tend to ask, but how on earth do you rule a kingdom that way? Like, no army, no money, like, no harem. Like, who does that? Like, this is the real world. We've got real evil and real problems. It'd be great if we could, if we could lead and rule like that, but you can't. Like, you need real stuff. This is the real world after all. And in steps Jesus into the story. No army, but commanding darkness and casting out evil. No money, but feeding multitudes by multiplying food. No wives, but treating women with respect for the first time in that, in, that, uh, in that entire era, freeing them and forgiving them and healing them better than any bridegroom ever could. He controlled nature and healed sick and, and cleansed the unclean, freeing the oppressed. As we watch Jesus wielding power, real power, and doing it for the good of others, we suddenly see what a trumpery imitation military might really is. It's like when you have no real power, you make war so you can at least feel like you have some kind of facsimile of power. But Jesus shows up with real power. So when we see this thing in Deuteronomy 7, but how does a king actually live like that? No wealth, no military might. Jesus shows up and he goes just like this. You show up wielding real power. And God's kingdom has always been about real power. When God first established his kingdom in Israel, he completed, continually reminded them that he was the God who with a powerful arm delivered them from the bondage of, of Egypt. Then Moses climbed the mountain and appeared before God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce this to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Real power. You know I carried you on angels' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you'll be my special treasure. From among all the peoples of the earth, all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is the message you must give the people of Israel. You cannot separate God's powerful Savior side from his king side. They go together. And that's exactly the same this morning. Jesus is the king who commands us. But he's also the savior who 
canceled our slavery. He's the king and the savior who canceled our sin. He's the king who canceled our sickness. And Jesus is the savior who cancels our fear and anxiety. If we want the beauty and power of deliverance and salvation, we have to be ready to live in a kingdom that has a king on the throne. No crying out that we want a king like all the other nations. We have a king and he's on the throne and his name is Jesus. Amen. So what does that mean to have a king? Or maybe a better way of asking it, what does it mean to be a kingdom people who actually recognize that they have a king? Well, first, it means that you are not king. I am not king. This doesn't always go over well in America where we don't like being told what to do. But you are not the one who sits on the throne. You do not run the show. I do not run the show. You know, we don't even run our own lives, really. I'm growing more and more convinced that one of the greatest sources of, of misery in our world is the illusion of control. I mean, we know we don't run everything, and, but, but I believe most of us feel like we run way more than we actually run. And whenever life shows us just how little power we actually have, it makes us miserable. And the funny thing is, we pretend like we don't want control. God, I just want your will. Thy will be done. We beg God to do, you know, things in our lives. And the second a hard road presents itself, we balk and start looking for a new road. Or worse yet, we read scripture where we're supposed to live a certain way or love a certain way or do certain things and we try to ignore or minimize that command while also crying out for the will of God. I saw this skit once and I used to do it where you somebody's you have all this climbing gear on and you act like you you fall and you're hanging from the rope and you're sitting there and you're like you pray God please help me save me Jesus and you have somebody off stage and their voice comes booming over the thing I'm here to save you I'm going to take care of you you're going to be okay awesome thank you so much and God says cut the rope you're like I'm sorry yeah cut the rope just trust me just believe me, cut the rope. You have this long thing. And afterwards, you hang, you're like, okay, God, hold on one second. Let me think about this. Buddha, are you up there? <laughs> we want another path, right? When God says, here's what you got to do. We're like, yeah, but I don't want to do that. As Americans, our national story started with us deciding that monarchy was bad and that we should have a voice in our government. And this honestly makes living in the kingdom hard sometimes. I honestly think this is, this is why most of us tend to believe the, the easy way to accomplish God's will is through politics. Because we have some control there. We feel like we have a voice there. We want to believe that, that we have an access to real power. And I don't know how to tell you this, but the kingdom of God is not a democracy. We have a king. And, and I'm not it. You're not it. We are not it. And I'll be honest, this is why I think the church struggles in America right now. For one, too much of the church is ignoring our king and we're crying out, God, give us a president like everybody else. Hello. That's hard. But even more, too many of us in church are running around pretending like we can change things whenever we want. We can change the kingdom to fit our needs. We can just change the word of God if there's parts we don't like. 
We can alter definitions and rules if they don't suit us. We, we basically just live like this is a democracy and it's not. We are subjects in a kingdom that has a king. This means we don't get to make the calls. I said this first element of the kingdom almost goes without saying that we have to have a king, but I think when this series is over, living with the reality that we actually have a king will most likely be the most difficult part of this series. But according to this moment's passage back in 1 Samuel 8, it's completely possible to live in a kingdom in such a way that you basically forget you have a king. And this to me is the greatest tragedy possible because the king makes the kingdom. I don't have time to track the entire thing, but maybe the single greatest theme in the prophetic books would start from Judges and go all the way through the prophets. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, all the way through all the prophets is basically the idea that the king matters. Good kings led to a good nation. Bad kings led to a bad nation. There's one story that's always terrified me, and I wish I had time to read it, but I don't. David takes a census, basically just to brag on how many people he's the king over. And and in that moment, even Joab, who's the guy who like helped him commit murder, this, Joab is not his good influence. Joab helps him commit murder earlier in his story. Even Joab is like, dude, don't do this. This is a bad move. But David goes ahead and does it, and the second he did it, he knew it was, it was bad, and he, and he blew it. And God confronts David, but lest David choose his own punishment. Three years of famine, three months fleeing from your enemies, or three days of severe plague. David chooses plague, and 70,000 people die of the plague. Think on that for a minute. That is a lot of families affected by the king's sin. Now tell me that choosing the right king isn't a big deal. And over and over again in the, in the monarchy narratives, God seems to be saying, choose me, pick me. I'm the one you want leading. All of these other guys are going to lead you astray. That's a big deal. The right king is a big deal. And Jesus, in, in one of his long strings of parables about the kingdom in Matthew 13, says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered in, in, a, in a field. In his excitement, he hid it and sold everything to buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for a choice pearls when he discovers a pearl of great value. He sold everything he owned and bought it. Israel cries out for a king and hunts for a good king, desperately desiring the right king. And Jesus steps in like a treasure they've been searching for. Like, I'm right here, the pearl that you sell everything for. The kingdom of heaven is like someone who clings tight to the right king. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, Brett. I can tell we're going to be here a while if I don't hurry up. I think this shows up in, in Matthew, the tax collector story. Like how, how uh, materialistic do you have to be to become a tax collector in Israel? Like it's a highly lucrative job, but tax collectors are one of only like two groups of people that Israelites consider to be irredeemable. There was no sacrifice they could make to get caught back up. Like, there's only a couple classes of people that were irredeemable, and a Roman tax collector in Israel was one of them. Completely cut off from your people for profit. Willing to sacrifice everything for money. And then you meet Jesus. He invites you to dinner. And without looking back, 
you're his. You're all in. You follow Jesus. It's like you've looked your entire life for this pearl, this thing of value. You've hunted and sold everything for it. You've cheated. You've manipulated. You've alienated everyone in your ambition. And all of a sudden you see the one you're looking for. And just like that, you're all in. Church Legends has Matthew being stabbed and beheaded in Ethiopia for Jesus. So the same Matthew is willing to sell everything for more money, chooses to willingly endure pain and death because he found the true treasure. And that's what I think it means to be in love with Jesus. It means Jesus is the center of your universe. It means you love all the benefits of the kingdom, of course, but if, it's, if it ever hits the fan, you stick to Jesus. Even if it means suffering because the, the kingdom is all about the king. Jesus said, you want to know what the kingdom is like? It's like finding the thing that's worth everything. It's like finding the, the, the king that's worth everything. So how do we respond to this? I have to be honest, in all the times I've studied and taught on 1 Samuel 8, as Israel asked for a king, I think this is the first time I truly recognized that people were asking for something they already had. Give us a king. You already have a king. But this introduces a terrible risk. Because the Israelites forfeited so much to have a king. A king they could see rather than a king who had real power. It's not that they got a bad king necessarily or even a series of bad kings. It's what they gave up. It's what they relinquished. They traded a, a king who, who brought them out of Egypt by judging their oppressors and parting a sea and sending water from rocks and providing manna and quail for food and protecting them from every enemy. They traded the king who delivered them from every nation who tormented them, even, even forgiving them every single time they repented. They traded that king for a king who was tall and pretty good with a sword. They traded power for politics. And I guarantee they had no idea how much they were giving up. And if we aren't careful, we can make the same mistake. We have a king, and our entire kingdom has to revolve around him. He came delivering the oppressed. He came freeing those tormented by the devil and multiplying food for the hungry, giving sight to the blind. He healed the lame, cleansed the leper, saved lost and broken souls like mine. And he came declaring the good news of the kingdom. And I believe that if we aren't careful, we can trade the king who has real power for trumpery imitations like ideologies and political platforms or social clubs or safety. Sometimes we trade our king just for safety. And I think we're still completely of, capable of saying what Israel said. Give us a king so we can be like everybody else. One last story. There's a moment in Exodus 33 that always haunts me, but also inspires me. I heard a sermon about this like 30 years ago and it stuck with me like it was yesterday. God has just delivered his people from the Egyptian slavery. He's given them the Ten Commandments and, and made a covenant with them. He agreed to be their God and they agreed to be his people. There's nothing left to do but take the promised land. And God tells Moses it's time to get going. The Lord said to Moses, 
Get going, you and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt. Go up to the land I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I told them I will give you this, or give this land to your descendants. And you would think after all the drama of getting out of Egypt, after the promises God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about this land, you would think the very idea of a promised land, a heaven, if you don't mind me making the parallel, you would think that would send Moses like sprinting to get there. But Moses pauses. You've been telling me, take these people up to the promised land, but you haven't told me whom you will send with me. You've told me, I know you by name. I look favorably on you. If it's true that you look favorably on me, let me know your ways so I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. And remember that this nation is your very own people. And God knows exactly what Moses is asking. The Lord replied, I will personally go with you, Moses. I'll give you rest. Everything will be fine with you. So God tells the people to get moving. Go to the promised land. Moses starts out a little formal, kind of generically, you know, asking. You can almost hear like his, his shyness, like, um, who, who's going with me? And God sees through his pretense and answers Moses' real question. Yes, Moses. I'm going with you. And having been exposed like this, Moses' real heart for God comes out. The next verse says, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. Now let me remind you, they are in the wilderness. Like a day ago, things were so bad that the Israelites were talking about going back to Egyptian slavery. Just let us go back. At least we had plenty of food there. They are not in a good place. They're having to be hand-fed by God because nobody has access to, to any provisions. They're in a horrible place right now. And they finally got their marching orders to, to go to a land flowing with milk and honey. And Moses basically says that he would rather be in the desert with God than the promised land without him. Let that sink in for a minute. Wilderness with God is better than milk and honey without him. Lent is over. We did our our wilderness time. Jesus is risen and we stand on the brink of the kingdom. And I feel this morning as we contemplate what it means to have a king, like we need to pause with Moses and remember that this is all about Jesus. So much of our understanding of God's kingdom has been co-opted by our understanding of heaven. Like the kingdom of God is a place we will go when we die. But the Bible tells a very different story, which we're going to spend the next several weeks unpacking. But, But heaven is definitely a part of it, and it's great that that's a part of our story someday. Hopefully without all the ducks. But before heaven, I think we need to desire and fight for and believe for every blessing and benefit of God's kingdom in this life. I believe we need to learn to walk in the kind of power and identity that Jesus bought with his blood in this life. And I honestly think we're going to see God do some amazing things. But whether it's heaven or kingdom power right here and now, I think the key is what Moses found in the mountain. It's not about heaven. It's not about Signs and wonders is not about freedom and blessing. Chasing after those will leave us empty and lost. 
But when we say what Moses said, the, the dry and desolate wilderness with Jesus is better than a promised land without him. That's when we're seeking the kingdom of heaven first. And all these other things will be added unto you. So as we gather around the table, maybe let those words of Moses just kind of wash over you and become your prayer this week. God, no matter how much you have for me, if you don't personally go with me, then just leave me here. I'd rather be here with you than anywhere else without